Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. I so miss you guys today. I just want to say happy Easter, everyone. I hope you have on uh, your Sunday best. Our hope was just to have some fun before church. And yes, my wife did uh, dress me, and this is something she got me, new shirt. Um, hey, I just want to say welcome. Uh, if this is your first time maybe watching the live stream, Facebook, uh, maybe you're on YouTube, I don't know. I just want to say welcome. My name is Josiah. Uh, I am so disappointed we cannot be in person today. Um, our school uh, place, you know, our auditorium where we meet is closed, uh, and that's why we're doing a live stream, obviously. Churches all over the world are closed, but here's the whole point. The churches might be closed, but the tomb is open. The tomb is empty. And so we gather together today, today just to celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen. So I just want to say welcome. We're going to be in the fourth gospel, go, the, the gospel of John, John chapter 20. So if you would turn to John 20, that would be awesome if you have a Bible. If not, we'll put the verses up here for you guys. But again, if this is your first time, I just want to say welcome. We've been praying for you guys. Uh, we're expectant that the Lord is going to move and speak and do great things. Um, I want to do something before we get into the message today. So my wife and I grew up in Southern California. And we went to a church where every year, our pastor, his name was Pastor Chuck, he would do the same thing every Easter, and it kind of became a tradition, and we love it now. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say, he is risen, and then at home, I'm trusting in faith that you're going to say, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to say, he is risen, and then you say, he is risen indeed, and we're going to do that here, too, with the worship team. So here we go. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. And yes, he is risen. And that's why we gather on a Sunday, that's why we gather on the first day of the week, to celebrate the fact that Jesus on the first day of the week rose again. He has risen. And what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for us today? Here's what that means. That means our, the sin, our sin was paid for on the, on the cross. Their sin was paid for. And it also means that on Easter Sunday, we have the receipt for that payment. So how do we know our sin was paid for? Well, Jesus rose again. Have you ever had a credit card or debit card not work? Like maybe, you know, you swiped it and said insufficient funds. Yeah, me neither. Um, but if you've ever had that and you're swiping and swiping and swiping and swiping, here's how you know it goes through. You know it goes through when there's a receipt. On the cross, Jesus paid for our sins. How do we know it worked? How do we know it went through? We have a receipt. We have the resurrection. And this story changed history. And this story has changed my life. I'm guessing for many of you watching, this story has changed your life. That Jesus is risen. And we're going to look at a story in John 20 where four people have this encounter with Jesus. And I want to just talk about this and look at this in depth because these four people all doubted that everyone in this story, all the disciples, that they all had doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. That no one's first thought was he must be risen. That their first thought was something completely different. And so here's why I'm sharing this. If you're watching, um, we, we're calling this Easter service, Hope Has a Name. And I'm guessing what that name is but there's this balance sometimes where maybe we fall into this um, difficult place between hope and skepticism, between hope and doubt, between hope and cynicism. And if you are coming and watching right now and maybe you're like, I have no idea why I'm watching. I was, you know, on Facebook, someone invited me or someone texted me the link or I got a fly. I have no idea. But you might be in that place where you're like, did this really happen? How do we know? And maybe you're skeptical. Maybe for you, hope isn't something you want to, you know, believe in right now. Maybe hope is difficult for you. And so honestly, we just want to slow down and look at this story and look at the resurrection story and see that hope truly has a name. So uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read John chapter 20. We're going to like read through almost the whole chapter actually today. 
And we're going to put the verses up in case you don't have a Bible, but please, if you do, that'd be great to turn there. But before we do anything, this might be brand new to you. This might be strange to you. But I'm going to ask that we actually take a second where you, where you're at, like everyone, right now, you, if you're with your family, your spouse, just pray a quick 10-second prayer and say, God, I have doubt, I have skepticism, but would you speak to me? Take 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and just say, God, I'm open today. I'm open today to hear from you, even if I have doubt, even if I'm skeptical and cynical, even if you've been a Christian for a long time and there's still some cynicism in you or this doubt that rises up, I'm just going to ask that you speak, that you pray to God right now for 10 seconds say, God, speak to me. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you some time to pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this time we get to open up your word, to study, to look at you. Jesus, um, we believe with all our whole heart that you are risen. And though doubt arises, Jesus, thank you for meeting us. Thank you for meeting us where our doubts are. God, I ask that you would just speak today. God, I ask that those who are just watching somehow and they find themselves here, that you would move even in their home, remove distractions, remove just everything, Jesus, that our full attention would be on you. God, we just want you to do things only you can do. You bring dead men to life. You brought your son, Jesus, to life. And you still do that. You still bring people who are dead spiritually. You bring them to life. And we ask that you do that again this morning in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You know, I find myself hoping for a lot of things these days, now more than ever. You know, the obvious, I hope this COVID-19 pandemic comes to an end. I hope that there's a reliable treatment soon. I hope that we have a good preventative plan moving forward. Uh, I hope that my wife and I find new ways to entertain our kids because we're starting to lose our mind. Um, I hope that this elbow bump thing does not last forever, but it probably will. It probably is going to become the new norm, but I hope that does not last forever. I hope that the NBA resumes again, and then the Lakers win it all for Kobe. Um, there's a lot of things I find myself hoping for. And here's the point. Everyone hopes in someone, or everyone hopes in something. Everyone has hope. This is not just a religious thing. This is not just a Christian thing. Everyone places hope in someone or something. That you're placing your hope saying, I hope this doesn't fail me. I hope this meets my needs and my expectations. And everyone exercises some hope. I think right now, if you think about it, right now we're, we're hoping a lot in doctors. I, I'm hoping doctors can meet people's needs. We're hoping in science. We're hoping in politicians. Just kidding, no one really is. Um, but we all hope in something. There's all something we're hoping in or hoping for. And I want to make this clear distinction, and please like, stick with me on this, because I think we use this word a lot, hope. We use this word hope a ton. But the Bible makes a distinction between the way we use the word hope and the way the Bible uses the word hope. So let me kind of explain the difference. Um, I kind of used it earlier, right? We kind of say, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope I get a good grade on my exam. I hope I don't lose my job. I hope I get my job back again. We kind of use it like wish wishful thinking. We kind of like want to stay positive, you know, like, oh, I just hope that everything goes how I want it to go. And we kind of say it like reluctantly. Maybe when you hear someone say this, I hope that this happens. You think, oh, that's so sweet of them. They're so naive. They think this might work out. And we kind of look down and belittle people who have hope. Here's how the Bible describes hope. The Bible describes hope as this confident, concrete reality. 
uh, it doesn't describe it as wishful thinking. It talks about it in this light of this has happened and is going to happen, and we're walking in that reality. That the Bible says our hope does not disappoint as other people's hope disappoints them. We have a hope that does not disappoint. Our hope is not some figment of our imagination. Our hope is not something we made up. Our hope is grounded in reality, in substance, in evidence, and this is what we see. And I want to talk about this hope because, again, right now, you, myself, everyone is hoping in something. And I want to ask you a question, um, the thing you're hoping in, how's it going? Like, honestly, the thing that you're putting your, your trust in, the thing you're hoping in, how's that going? How's the integrity of your hope? Is it failing you? Is it falling apart? So how's our hope going? Where is it at? Here's what the Bible says about hope. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, we have a living hope. It's not some ambiguous type of hope. Um, our hope is actually in the resurrection of Jesus. Our hope is in an event. Our hope is not some idea or philosophy we wishfully think and hope it might happen. Our hope is in a concrete reality, an event of human history that literally changed the world. Peter says we have a living hope. Now here's why I'm bringing this up and please listen. Before the resurrection of Jesus, it seems as if everyone here had no hope. Like no one had hope. Like I wanna be really clear. Mary, John, Peter, and Thomas, Thomas gets the bad rap, but everyone here had zero hope. No one was expecting the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus happened, then hope was made, then hope was created. Because hope, again, for us, is not some feeling, it's a concrete reality. So I want, to, I want us to get this, because if you are a doubter, if you are a skeptic, if, if, let me just say this, that is not necessarily a bad thing. The disciples were. The disciples were doubters and skeptics. They actually had a lot of doubts and a lot of fears and a lot of skepticism. So I think we actually have a lot to learn from them. Actually, the Bible tells us we're not to fear doubt. Like, I, I don't know if you grew up in a family where maybe you started questioning your faith and like, no, we don't do that. No, actually, the Bible welcomes doubters. Jesus met these doubters and skeptics where they're at. I want us to get that. Jesus is willing right now to meet you and me where, where we are at in our skepticism and our doubt. The Bible's not like, I can't believe you have doubt. I can't believe you have fear. Actually, it welcomes it and embraces it. Now, eventually, you have to make a decision. You can't live on the fence of doubt your whole life. Eventually, you have to make a decision one way or the, way, one way or the other. You have to. But the Bible welcomes doubt. I actually want to read this quote about doubt uh, in a book called The Reason for God. Listen to this. A faith, listen, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection." I love this. Doubt actually is like a way to strengthen our spiritual immune system. Do you hear that? So I'm actually asking Christians today um, to be okay with your doubts, to take your doubts somewhere. Don't just have doubts for the sake of having doubts and doing nothing with it. Then you're not a true doubter. A true doubter does something with their doubts. So if you're, you find yourself, I'm just a skeptic towards this whole Christian thing. Jesus rose again from the grave. I mean, I just doubt any of this ever happened. Don't just stay there. Let, take your doubt and follow it. Follow the evidence to where that doubt leads you. 
And I think maybe we've assumed, well, I read the Bible years ago, and I just, I know it's not for me, but maybe right now this moment God is saying, you need to know what, we're going to actually embrace some doubt. So here's what I'm trying to say. I'm going to call Christians to doubt. Like, I think that actually strengthens our immune system. That's okay. I'm, I'm saying ask the questions you've been asking. That is completely necessary, and that, that is helpful. The Bible doesn't say faith means you'll have no doubt. The Bible says that faith looks at this. You will have doubt, but despite of that, you're still trusting in God who's been trustworthy. So you'll still have doubt, but you realize that over time, God is trustworthy, that God is actually willing to meet us where our doubts are. So again, if you are a skeptic, I'm inviting you to doubt. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at a story where all of the disciples that encountered Jesus, all of them had doubt. All of them at first didn't believe. Something had to happen for them to believe. So I want to look at five musts, five musts, like you must have this to be a good doubter. Five musts for the skeptic. So if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're watching. Um, the disciples were doubters too, so you're in the same boat as them. And I want to give you five musts for doubting. So please track with me. Five musts for, having, for being a good doubter and five musts that we must have for necessary faith. So let's look at the first one. We're going to read this, but here's the first point. Uh, you must doubt your doubts. You must doubt your doubts. You must doubt your unbelief. Those of you who don't believe, I'm asking you to doubt that. You want to doubt everything else but your own worldview. I'm asking you to doubt your own worldview. Let's read it. It's John chapter 20, verse 1. All right, here's the story. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2, it says, then she ran. She runs, and she comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Do you catch, catch that first point? Number one, doubt your doubts, doubt your unbelief. Okay, here's Mary. She gets to the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and it says she runs. And her first thinking is this, they must have taken Jesus. They must have stolen Jesus. I want you to notice that here is a follower of Jesus and her first thought is not, the stones rolled away, he must be risen. Her first thought is, the stones rolled away, he must be stolen. I, I need you to see this. Um, by nature, faith is not our default setting. No one just like has this born, is with this incredible amount of faith in the sense of, um, no one is, that's not our default mode. I want to say Christians, if skeptics say, well, Christians will believe anything. Actually, as we see here, Mary tells us that her default setting was not faith. Her default setting was unbelief. It was someone must have stolen his body. Let me say it this way. The Bible talks about faith as a gift. That it's not like we can like, force it or make it happen. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Thank you, Jesus, by grace. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? This grace and this faith. You see, again, um, faith is not our natural default setting, meaning it's, faith is hard to come by. I, people who are skeptics say, you Christians will believe anything. You check your brain at the door. Again, I want to point this out. This first follower did not do that. She, that was not her default setting. So let me just kind of uh, paint the scene a little bit. Jesus just died. He's been in the grave. Mary goes there to visit him early in the morning. She sees this tomb or the stone rolled away, and it says in verse 2, then she ran. I love this about Mary. Uh, Mary's the woman in the horror movie who lives, right? Like, she, she sees the issue, and she's out of there. Um, you know, in every horror movie, there's always someone who's like, do you hear that noise? Do you see that room? 
let's go check it out. And you're like, they're dead. They're dead. That's it. They're going to die. Um, Mary's not that person. I don't know if you're that person. Like, you see something happen, you're like, she just books it out of there. And it says she goes to Simon Peter. She goes to Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? That is John, the author of the Gospel of John, writing about himself. So John is saying, I'm the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And I love this because there's kind of this competition between Peter and John. And he's basically saying, you know, uh, so Mary ran to Peter and to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, yeah, Peter was there, but Jesus, by the way, loves me more. Like, John just has to, like, throw that in there. And if, like, three different times he does this. Uh, yeah, he loved Peter, but he loved me more. And so she runs to the disciples, and notice what she says. She says, they have taken away the body. Again, I cannot stress this enough. Her first thought is not, he is risen. Her first thought is, they've stolen the body. Why is that so important? Listen, um, Mary, we know, was one of the many women who followed Jesus wherever he went. Mary would have been with Jesus at all of his amazing, just a few days earlier, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. Mary saw that. Mary would have been the one who saw him feed the 5,000, who saw him cleanse the leper, who spoke words and people either came back to life or were healed or forgiven. Mary saw miracle after miracle. Actually, my favorite thing is this with all the disciples, not just Mary, but Jesus says, I think at least three different times before he dies, he goes, hey guys, we're gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna die and on the third day rise. And I love when Peter's like, hey Jesus, what do you mean by you're gonna die? Like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, it means I'm gonna die and I'm gonna rise again. And it's funny, they're all confused by this because in their mind, what Jesus should be is he should rule, he should reign. We all have this idea of what Jesus should be. In their mind, Jesus shouldn't be, oh, he should be the one who dies. And they're all confused. And he said this multiple times, I'm gonna die and rise, and yet no one. Mary was around that, and she doesn't believe. I mean, you would think for a second, she might come to the tomb, see the, the, the stone rolled away, and maybe, just maybe there's a thought of, could it really be? Like, is he really risen? Like, even if there's 1% thought of, of that in your brain, like you've seen this guy do amazing miracles. You've seen him do incredible things. Why isn't her line of thinking, maybe it happened? It's because, again, faith is a gift from God. And by nature, faith is not our default setting. And this needs to be brought up because I'm asking everyone to doubt their doubts. I wish Mary doubted her doubt in a sense right away. I wish the disciples would, and they, they will begin to do that. But I'm inviting the skeptic and the cynic to doubt your doubts. So um, you might have unbelief. I'm going to say doubt that. Why? Your default setting might be cynical to everything and anything. I'm inviting you to doubt your doubts. You want to doubt Christianity. You want to doubt every worldview, every religion. Okay, but would you actually take a second to doubt what you believe? You see, Mary, listen, please listen to this. Mary seems to have considered everything other than the fact that he's risen. Mary's like, someone stole it, that's it. I came in, I came to visit Jesus. She's open to the fact that someone stole the body, but it doesn't seem at first, she's open to the fact that he's risen. And again, I just, I cannot stress this enough. Here's why I'm saying this. Um, faith is not like a light switch. Let me just be really queer. Clear, not queer, clear. Um, faith, oh, that's all, that's all I going to stick with you. Faith is not like a light switch. Here's what I mean by that. Um, you cannot turn on, off and on uh, the light switch of faith. You can't. So my point is this. When it comes to faith, it's not like I can just muster it up. And Here's what I'm trying to say. If God is speaking to you right now, if you sense that God is moving in you, you cannot say, well, I'll revisit this tomorrow or next week or next month or next year because who's to say you're gonna have that faith in that moment that you have at this point? I'm asking everyone to doubt their doubts. See, I wanna ask this question. Why was the tomb rolled away? Like, why was the stone, sorry? Why was the stone rolled away in front of the tomb? Why? Did Jesus need the stone to be rolled away so he could get out? No, we're gonna see that Jesus is really good of getting out of things or into things with things being locked or closed or shut. Jesus didn't need the stone to roll away for him to get out. You see, Jesus had the stone rolled away so we could get in. My point is, 
that we think we're pursuing God, but I believe all along God is pursuing us. We think we're searching, we, oh, I've searched, I've looked into Christianity. I've looked into this before, but listen, I believe God's on the hunt for you. I believe God has a stone rubber way to say, come in. I want you to see, and I'm inviting you in, I'm on the hunt for you. I believe right now, if you're listening to this, because God's on the hunt for you. I believe my whole life, I, I, you know, there's a side of it where you, I even want to search for God, where as a young kid, it's like, I try so hard to read my Bible or do things to hear from God in my later teens, and then eventually, I just kind of gave in. I gave in to the pursuit of God. Like, God was pursuing me. And you just kind of go, hey, God, I, don't, I can't run anymore from you. I can't find you. The point is, if there is a God, and obviously believe there is, if there is a God, we could never find him. He would have to choose to reveal himself to us. And I'm asking everyone to doubt their doubts, doubt your skepticism, doubt your cynicism. Mary considered the fact that Jesus might be sold and not the fact that he is risen, and yet she spent all this time with him. Faith is not our default setting. And I'm asking you right now, if you sense even for a moment that God might be speaking to you, doubt those doubts that you've had all along towards Christianity and be open to this. Be open to the fact that maybe his body wasn't stolen. Be open to the fact that maybe he is risen. So here's my first point. Doubt your doubts. Doubt your unbelief. Amen? Are you following with me? Here's number two. Um, You must. That's the first you must. The second must. You must look at the evidence yourself and decide. You must look at the evidence yourself and decide. Let's read verse three. Keep going with me. Uh, John chapter 20, verse three. Peter therefore went out. So she comes to them says they've stolen his body. Peter went out and the other disciple and they're going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Again, I love this banter. John's like, oh, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved and I'm faster than Peter. Like not only am I more loved, but Peter, I'm also faster than you. And I just, I don't know why I just love this. Like you can't make this up. He wrote it this way because this is the way it happened and this is what he's thinking and reminiscing and remembering and feeling. And again, you cannot make this up. Verse six or verse uh, five. And so he, John, stooping down, looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and Peter goes into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who came to the tomb first, by the way, just remember, uh, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Can me explain what's going on. So they hear this message, he must be stolen, he must be gone. Peter runs, John runs, John's like, I got there first, just keep that in mind. They get to the tomb, now P- John doesn't go in, he looks in. Now, uh, I've been to Israel. I've been to what it's called the garden tomb. Um, we cannot say 100% concretely this is the garden tomb. I like to think it is because there's a lot of evidence for it and Golgotha seems to be nearby, the place where Jesus was crucified. And there's a lot of things about that, but you can go to the garden tomb. And for me, my height, six foot, I have to stoop down like John and look in. Like it's not something you're gonna, you're gonna hit your head on. So John stoops down and looks in and he sees the linen cloths. I want you to get the idea that John doesn't go in. He just looks in. He's looking, he's observing. Peter just runs in and barrels in. He, Peter just goes in. Now, if you're new to the scripture, we love Peter. Uh, Peter's like that type A personality. He's probably like us. He speaks before he thinks, you know. Uh, Peter's a pretty determined guy, proactive guy. Uh, I just picture Peter running to the tomb, getting there after John. He's like out of breath. Like, <sighs> he's like, man, you beat me. He's like, I thought I had you that time. Like, I just imagine this like banter going on. And so Peter goes in and it says he's seen the linen cloths. And then John eventually goes in and he sees the cloths. Now, I have to point this out because for us, there's actually three different words for the word see. We just see the word see. Let me explain. In verse one, 
when Mary sees that the stone is rolled away, it's this word I'm going to mispronounce in the Greek, like all Greek words I mispronounce. It's blepe. Blepe. I don't know. Blepe. Um, Mary, it means she saw with her eye. She sees the stone rolled away, and she sees with her eye. Okay? Now, we'll move on. In verse 5 through 8, we're going to see that John saw, Peter saw, then it says John saw again. And different words are being used. Here is the idea. Peter saw, like, theoreo. Uh, here's what that means. To scrutinize, to theorize, to weigh, to ponder. Peter sees these things, and he's thinking about it. He's pondering, he's theorizing, he's weighing his options. John saw that the same way, but then in verse 8, look at verse 8 again. When he came to the tomb first, listen, he went in, John now goes in, and he saw and believed, and it's this word, horeo. The idea behind that even is he's experiencing, perceiving, discerning. Please do not lose sight of what I'm saying right here. Mary sees with her eye, the stone is rolled away. She saw, verse one. John also sees, Peter sees though, and he's theorizing. He's looking at the cloth and he's going, what is this? John, same thing. He, he goes in and he's also seeing the cloth and he's also discerning, but he's now experiencing. And please, I'm begging you to like focus and listen at this point. We can all look at the same thing and come to different conclusions. I get that. But I want you to notice what Peter and John do. They're looking at this evidence and they're considering, they're thinking, they're pondering, they're weighing their options. Peter's going, okay, I see the cloths, the linen. I see the handkerchiefs, the headscarf lying there, folded up neatly. And he's going, is this possible? They're thinking, what is this? They're theorizing and weighing and pondering. And here's why this is so important. Think about this. Imagine you go in and you go, wait, Okay, there's headcloths. They stole the body. Think with me about this. Think about the progression of this. You're thinking, if they stole the body, why did they rip his clothes off? Like, why did they rip off these linens? Why did they lay it neatly? If someone stole the body, and remember, there's Romans guarding the tomb, and maybe they're sleeping, and there's all these, but the idea is, okay, well, how do they do this? Why did they, they're in a rush to steal the body, and they leave it there. Now, if the disciples stole the body, um, why would they shame him by exposing him, making him naked, and taking off those robes, those linen garments, the veil? Why would they do that? Um, at this point, the body's beginning to smell three days. You think about it, why would they unwrap that and take that out just to carry this pussy, smelly body? Why would anyone do that? The point is, Peter's walking in going, I don't get how this is here. John's going, I don't get how this is here. But John's, John's seeing, and then it's, he's experiencing. His word for see is he's experiencing, he's discerning, and it says, and John believed. I love that, by the way, again, John. John's like, not only am I loved and not only am I faster, I was the first one to believe. John's like pointing to all this, and again, this is how you would write if this is your eyewitness account. And John's saying, I had this experience, and it led to belief. And I, I have to make this clear. You must, listen, look at the evidence yourself and decide. That's what's happening. They're looking at the evidence pondering, theorizing, scrutinizing, discerning. How is it possible? How is their linen cart? Why is it folded nicely? Wouldn't someone just sold the whole body and made it been in and out in a hurry? Why would they take the time to fold this? What is going on? And they're just going there. And you think that there's like something happening in their heart. Like, can it really be? Like, Peter's not there yet. Peter's like, I don't know. Can it really be he's risen? Can it really believe that he just walked out of the grave? Can it really be? 
Like, what has happened this moment? So here's what I want to bring up. Um, I want to look at some evidence for the resurrection. Because you must look at the evidence. You must look at the evidence and decide. And there's evidences we must look at and decide. Now, let me just kind of bring up a really clear step-by-step thing. Here's the first thought. Um, Any good historian will agree, for the most part, about this when it comes to the life of Jesus. Not a Christian historian, but any just good historian will look and say, okay, Jesus was a real person. Like, okay, I can look at all the evidence, all the manuscripts, all the writings, not just the Bible, but non-Christians. He was a real person. And they'll agree on this. Yeah, and he was crucified. There's enough documentation to show that he was crucified. And they'll agree on this third part. The tomb was empty. I didn't say that he rose again, but they'll agree on the part that the tomb was empty. I mean, most legitimate good historians who will look at, again, not just the writings of Christians, even if this isn't, even if you don't believe this inspired word of God as some sort of historical document, or they'll look at maybe other documents, and they'll come to that conclusion. He was real. He was crucified, and you know what? His tomb was empty. The question, obviously, is how. How was it empty? Why was it empty? How did it become empty? How did, why did it stay empty? So there's a few different options. Really, here's the only the options that we have. Mary's option. Someone must have stolen the body. The, I think a common theory, obviously, that most people talk about is, well, obviously, the disciples stole the body. I mean, if anyone stole it, the disciples stole the body. Yes, these untrained, unarmed fishermen came to Roman soldiers and they, whether they were, they fought them, beat them up, tore off the Roman seal over the tomb and they risked their lives. The ones who are fearful and hiding, the ones who are shamed and weren't even at the crucifixion scene. Yes, they got all this brave to fight on Roman soldiers. Like, no, no. Uh, that's like me trying to fight a UFC fighter. It's, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, that did not happen. Or you say, okay, fine. The disciples made this up. That's easy. The disciples just made this up. This is something they just said, hey, let's get together and let's make this up. Now, here's what I want to say to that. And please follow with me. Um, I I don't know how that is a legitimate argument, and and here's why. When you think about the disciples just made it up, well, then the argument that they gave for the resurrection sounds crazy. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel content is too counterproductive to be legend. The gospel content is too counterproductive to be legend. What do I mean by that? Think about this story. Um, All the Romans had to do if they made this up is just produce a body. If this was just made up, the Romans just say, guys, I know there's a rumor going around that you're seeing Jesus. Here's his body. All they would have to do is produce a body. That did not happen. Also, if they're making this up, why do you think that they would say, hey, the first eyewitness to the resurrection, which we're going to see in a second, was a woman? Why would they say, you know what? We who live in a chauvinistic, patriarchal society, let's just say, you know, a good argument is a woman saw him first. If you're going to make this up, why would that be the thing you start off with? When a woman's testimony wasn't even allowed to be used in court, And you're saying, you know what, let's make it a woman, the first person who saw him. You're not going to do that if you're making this up. Listen, when I say the gospel content is far too counterproductive to be legend, here's what I'm really saying by that. Um, Think about the way the disciples portray themselves. They're constantly fighting, constantly arguing, constantly bitter. Uh, They're saying, I'm going to be the greatest in heaven. No, I'm going to be the greatest in heaven. They send their mom, mom, tell tell Jesus to make me the greatest in heaven. Um, They're arguing about Jesus, the Samaria, they denied you. Can we just call down from fire from heaven and kill them? You're not going to portray yourself that way if you're trying to be a founder of a faith or a movement. You're not going to portray yourself as petty, angry, bitter, unless that's really what happened. You're not going to try to write your own story and make yourself look bad the entire time. You're not going to write yourself into the story and not, you're not looking like a hero. You're looking like a fool, which they did so often, even into the New Testament when Peter is being accused of being racist and being called out to repent for his sin. My point being that if they're the founders of this and they're making this up, why would they write themselves in the story this way? Why would they make themselves look so foolish and so petty throughout all of this? You see, it's far too counterproductive for it to be legend. You see, I also want you to consider this thought. I mean, it seems as if, obviously, overnight, 
hundreds and then thousands of people's worldview change in a moment. Like in a moment, Greeks, Romans, Jews are all saying this Jesus died and rose again. And they're all living for that truth. Now, it's really hard to switch a lot of people's worldview all at once, all in a period of time, unless they saw something, unless they experienced something. Again, um, I want to point this out. C.S. Lewis uh, talks about something called chronological snobbery. And here's what that is. It's the idea that, hey, listen, it's 2020. We're sophisticated people. I mean, our worldview does not allow us to believe in supernatural things like a resurrection. But for them back then, I mean, this is easy for them to believe in. I mean, they were more prone to believing in the supernatural. Listen, those who say that uh, really reveal that they don't understand Greek and Roman um, culture, and they don't understand Jewish culture. Here's what I mean. Greeks and Romans did not believe the body was good. They believed the body was bad or evil. They believed the spirit is good. They viewed death as liberation of the soul. So for them to believe in a bodily resurrection, they're not inclined to want to believe in that because in their mind, the body is not a good thing. Also for Jews, Jews do not believe in a physical resurrection until the very end of the age. They're not going to believe that one man in the middle of history rose again unless that's what happened. My point for us is we can say snobbery, like like C.S. Lewis says, we can say the attitude of, you know what, they would believe that that's easy for them, but not for us today. No, listen, for them, dead people stay dead, all right? (laughs) Like for us, we go, dead people stay dead. Yeah, they believe that too. They also believe dead people stay dead, but what changed? The fact that Jesus rose again. They saw something. Something completely and dramatically changed them. I really want us to consider this. These founders of this faith, they did not benefit financially. They did not benefit in any way. The ones, if they made this up, you think about this, they're the ones being fed to lions and yet they're singing. They're the ones being burned, literally lit on fire and burned at the stake, and they're singing and praising God. Thomas was speared, Peter was crucified upside down, they're going through some terrible things, and yet they're doing it with faith and bravery. Now, if you knew this was a lie, and you're the founder, and you made this up, the founders are not going to die for that lie. Maybe you could say the followers will, but the founders will not, and yet the founders did. If they got together and conspired this great theory, why did they go through so much pain and torture and suffering? You see, consider, the, consider really the people who started this. It's a bunch of fishermen from Galilee untrained, unlearned, educated men, and somehow it became the greatest movement in human history. Over two billion people today are following Jesus. How does that happen? Unless they saw something. Jesus, who never went more than 100 miles away from his home, changed the world. Jesus, who never wrote a book, has more books written about him. Jesus, who never wrote a song, and yet there's more songs sung about him. Jesus, who never was an artist or did artwork, and yet more artwork is done about him. Why is that? Because somebody saw something. The fact that they are willing to risk their lives, put it on the line, not benefit financially, not benefit in any way, is because they saw the risen Jesus. They're saying, feed me the lions. We don't care. Take me and my family. As painful as it is to watch our family suffer and die, we saw the risen Jesus, and we're not going to recant that. We're not going to turn our back on that. And that's how this little movement from Galilee spread across the world where billions of people are following Jesus today. Because somebody saw something. Because there's evidence that happened. See, I agree. Listen, it does take faith to believe in the resurrection. I'm not saying that it doesn't. It does take faith to believe in the resurrection. But I also think it takes even more faith to believe in the alternatives to the resurrection. It takes faith to believe that Jesus died and rose again. I'm not going to downplay that. But it takes more faith to believe that his body was stolen and they made this. It takes more faith to believe that narrative. See, listen, you must look at the evidence yourself and decide. John, Peter, they're looking, they're theorizing, they're contemplating, they're going, I don't get this, what is going on? Again, again, their default setting is not faith. They're not like, I knew it, Jesus risen. That's not their default setting. That tells us something. That they're skeptic just like you and me. That they're doubters just like you and me. 
We must consider that. Now, verse 8 says, John saw and he believed. And I want to make this point clear. Um, John did not just believe. This idea of this word believe is he believed into. He believed into. Sometimes I think it's easy. I've talked to people. It's like, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Buddha. I believe in Gandhi. I believe in, and it's like they believe in Jesus as a good person, a good moral teacher, or they just believe in some kind of fashion about Jesus. And here's the idea. John's not just believe. It's not just some theoretical thing to him. He's believing into Jesus. Like, Jesus, I'm giving my whole life to you. I'm trusting in you. In you. When you see this idea they believed on or believed in Jesus, it's this Greek word E-I-S, and it literally means they believed into Jesus. Please understand what this looks like. So, for example, let's say it's World War I, and you are in a foxhole. And if you're in a fox, foxhole during World War I, you know if you stand up, they're going to snipe you, take your head out. So what do you do? You stay low. Now imagine the war comes to an end. You're in a foxhole. You get a phone call or you get a radio call, whatever, and they say, the war's over. Everyone, they surrendered. It's over. It's done. It's complete. No more fighting. No more battling. And you go, yes, it's over. It's done. And you believe it. The question is, are you going to stand up? You believe it. You heard it. You know it. You've been told. But if you stand up, who's going to be the first to stand up and really show they believed into it? The point when it comes to Jesus is not just I believe in him, yes, and that, you know, he's a great person, great teacher, he changed history, not just that, but do you believe into him? John believed into him. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact, but it's a personal experience. And it's not something that you just believe and go, okay, I believe he died and rose again, now what? You believe into him. You press into him. You believe into Jesus, and this is where we're going to see what Mary experienced. So listen, you must look at the evidence and, your, and decide yourself. And number three is this, you must listen for his voice. You must listen for his voice. You must be ready for his encounter. So let's keep reading. It's verse 10. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But listen, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. She has the courage now to look in herself. And she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, the angels said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there in the garden and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She supposing him to be the gardener said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, I want you to get this experience that's happening. Peter and John leave. She's at the tomb and she's crying. She's weeping. I mean, I, I really want us to try to experience the pain she felt. I mean, really think about Saturday. Think about the day before the resurrection. Think about this moment, this time. The hopelessness, the person you've been falling around, the one who's been doing all these great signs and miracles and wonders, and he's loving, and he's caring, and he's everything you've ever dreamed, and he's dead. And you thought he's the Messiah. You thought he's the one to bring peace. She's heartbroken. I mean, she's weeping on behalf of the world, in a sense. Like, everyone feels the pain of what just happened. And she's broken. And she finally gets some courage to look in the tomb, and she looks in the tomb and sees two angels, one at the head, one at the feet. And they say, hey, why are you weeping? And I, I know what I love about this. Mary was so like focused, so single-minded. She's not like, oh, it's angels. Let me just talk. She's just like, where's him? Where's Jesus? Where have they taken him? Like she's just so focused on Jesus. And then she's emotionally, she turns around and she sees someone. And again, imagine her just eyes filled with tears or looking down or seeing like a form. And she goes, sir, if you've taken him, just tell me where he is and I'll find him. And this is what happens. Jesus says one word, Mary. And then her response is one word back, Rabboni. And in that moment, history changed. I really want you to think through this. 
the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, the first person to hear his voice, the first person to have an encounter with him after the resurrection, everything from that moment on changed. The fact that he is not dead, he was not stolen, that he is risen. And he has this moment with Mary, and he says one word, and I love this. It's been called the most dramatic sermon, and yet the shortest sermon ever preached. Mary, the most dramatic sermon ever preached, she says one word, her name. And she realizes who it is. Here's what one commentator said about this. In six short syllables, and you can read this in Greek, he says Miriam. In six short syllables, Miriam and Rabboni. And in just about that many seconds, the world became a different place. For Mary, for you, and for all people. Death, once final, has met its match and is undone. And there is a new reality. Someone more final than death. At this point now, there's a new reality. Someone more final than death. All he says is Mary, and she goes, oh my, it's you, Jesus, Rabboni. And then she grabs him, and he's like, don't clean it. And there's this moment happening, and this is a beautiful exchange. And I'll, here's why I'm trying to paint this picture. John is a wonderful storyteller. Listen, um, I want us to get, catch the scenario in the scene. She's in a garden. She's in a garden. Jesus, God, is walking around the garden. There's two angels in the garden. Now, John is writing in such a way where to take our mind back to the first story in the Bible was to take our mind back to the first garden, the garden where God walked with man in the garden, the garden where things were perfect and sinless, the garden where really sin and the fall and temptation and everything broken came into the world from the first garden. And here's the idea. Woman gave man a deadly fruit and it led to the fall. Man, woman gave a message to man and it led to the fall. And now here's Jesus redeeming that moment and saying, woman, go tell men what have happened. The first woman had a message for a man that led to the fall. This woman has a message for man that changed the world. Please follow with me. Jesus is walking in the garden. God walked in the garden. Woman is now delivering this message, and there's two angels. Just like the two angels in Genesis, when man ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, and God put two angels to guard the garden of Eden. Like, why would God put two angels to guard it? Because God did not want man to eat of the tree uh, of life and live forever in the state that we're in. We already ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God put two angels in there to protect us, saying, don't eat of the tree of life so you stay this way. So God put two angels in the garden, just like God has two angels here at the tomb. And he's recreating this scenario and saying, what was lost in the first garden was discovered and found in this garden. And that is the point. What was lost in the garden of Eden was reclaimed in the garden tomb. See, the Bible has this wonderful way of always pointing back to itself or pointing ahead and saying what man and woman have lost in the garden. And what, ha- what, did, what, what happened? We lost intimacy with God. We, we lost walking with God. Sin won, death won. But what happens in this garden? Sin lost, death lost. We're walking with God again in the garden. See, what was lost in the garden was restored in this garden. This is the, this is the whole idea of the resurrection, that Jesus came to restore and redeem all things. This is why we preach this. This is why this is good news. He is risen. This is not just some phys- physical, historical thing. We must have this personal encounter with Jesus ourselves. Listen, you must hear his voice. If right now Jesus is saying your name, he said Mary, and she responds. If right now he's saying your name, you must respond. You must respond. Please do not put it away. Please do not think you'll hear his name again. Please do not think for a second faith is this light switch you can turn on and off. If God is speaking, you must respond. Here's the fourth must. Listen to this. You must drop your conditions. After this encounter with Mary, she goes to the disciples. Let's keep reading. Uh, it's in verse 18. So let's keep reading. Mary Magdalene, so she has this amazing moment with Jesus. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day, listen, that same day at evening, beginning the first day, 
or being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. That's an understatement. Verse 21, so Jesus came to them uh, again, peace to you. Or he said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 24, keep reading. Now Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and put my hand into the side, I will not believe. I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were gathered inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Listen, number four, you must drop your conditions. Please follow me with this. Mary's like, I saw him that same day. The disciples are afraid. They're afraid in this room. The doors are closed, meaning it's locked, it's shut. And Jesus appears in the midst. And I just can't imagine that moment. You're like, what? Like, did Jesus just break in? Like how, he's just in the midst of them. And he's like, hey, shalom, peace to you guys. I, just, I mean, I would need to hear that word after, I'd just be terrified, like terrified. Like, how did you get in here? He's like, shalom, chill, all right. And he's like, peace be with you. And he's like, look, and he shows him his hands and his feet. And it says this, I love it. It says, and they were glad. Like, if there's an understatement, that's an understatement. Um, here, here is the word, actually, and I thought this was so fascinating. When it says they were glad, it's this word like K-A-R-O. It looks and sounds like this word Cairo, maybe for that Cairo. It literally means glad for grace. It's a similar word to the Greek word for grace. It literally means they saw the Lord and they were glad for grace. They see Jesus and they're like, thank you, God, for grace. Thank you, you, for grace. Like this moment takes place where Jesus appears in the midst and they're going, this is grace. This is grace. He, he appeared to us. He has risen. Like grace has come. Grace is in our midst. Grace is here. And it says they're rejoicing. They're glad. And then it tells us, but Thomas wasn't there in verse 24. Now we don't know where Thomas was. Like we don't. There's a lot of speculation, like, where was Thomas? Like, what was he doing? You know, in my mind, I imagine Peter being like, yo, Thomas, can you, like, run a food errand for me? And they're like, Thomas is gone. Like, Thomas, you won't believe what happened while you're gone. And like, of course, this would be me. I would miss it. That's kind of how I imagine it. Um, like, Thomas maybe self-pity. I don't know. But either way, they're saying, we've seen the Lord. Now, when you read that, listen, in verse 25, we have seen the Lord. It's ongoing tense. Like, they're telling him over and over again, like, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Like, they're telling him over and over and over and over again, like, dude, you got to believe us. We've seen the Lord. You've got to believe us. He was here. And Thomas was hurt. And he goes, no, not unless I can put my fingers in his side and in his hands, I'm not going to believe. I will not believe. And you can hear that attitude and please stick with me. I believe that's like a lot of us. No, I don't know why maybe you, you're watching this. I don't know if someone invited you, sent you a text, if you're watching through Facebook, but I really want you to think about this. I think that a lot of us end up in this place of doubt or skepticism for many reasons, for many reasons. You could be angry like Thomas because you've lost a loved one. You could be a doubter and skeptic because you're just in a lot of pain. You might be a doubter or skeptic because the church has hurt you. Some priest, some pastor, someone from back in your past has hurt you. You could be a doubter or skeptic because you're just cynical towards some things in life. Some things have happened over and over and over again and just put in this place, God can't be real and God doesn't love me, there's no way. There are so many reasons why you could be a skeptic and doubt, a doubter. And, and here's what I want, to see, want you to see. Thomas is a doubter and skeptic, I really believe, because he's been hurt. He lost the love of his life. Like, he, he's been following Jesus for three years. He lost the person dearest to him. And he's like, no, I will not believe. 
I don't care if all 10 of you here are telling me you saw him, I'm not going to believe. And here's what Thomas is doing. He's not allowing himself to be surprised by hope. See, the way, work, the way hope works is so often we're surprised by it. Like, not a lot of us just have this innate hope. Hope usually has to smack us over the head. Hope usually has to, like, hit us like a freight train. Thomas is saying, I'm not going to allow myself to be surprised by this hope, and yet he was surprised by hope. Here's my prayer. Uh, My prayer, honestly, in this season, I know many people have been praying for a lot of you, and you might not even know that. That might sound weird, but they've been praying for you by name, and my prayer is that you would be surprised by hope today. My prayer is that hope would just hit you like a ton of bricks. And remember again what hope is. It's that confident, concrete reality. It's not this wishful thinking. It's this concrete reality in the event of the resurrection, that living hope, Peter said. It is confident. It is concrete. And Thomas is just so upset. And he goes, I'm not going to believe. And then here's what happens. Thomas is there. Eight days later, Jesus again appears to them, which I love. And he's like, hey, shalom. Like, again, just like, calm down. And he sees Thomas. And here's what he does. He goes, Thomas, go ahead, man. Put your fingers in my hands and my, my waist. Do not be unbelieving, but believe, he says to him. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And I want you to think about this really quick. Notice Jesus' extreme patience with him. Jesus shows up. He's not like, come on, man. Why didn't you believe the other 10 guys? He's not frustrated. He's not going, Thomas, that's kind of gross and weird, by the way. You want to put your fingers in my hands? My like, that's gross and weird. Why would you do that? That's not what he's doing. He's not condemning him. He's not belittling him. Jesus is like this in the most loving, rebukeful way, actually appears to me, it's so loving, it's so graceful, it's so patient. Thomas, go ahead, put your hands in. Feel, touch, go ahead, man. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus met Thomas where he was at with his doubts. And I want us to see something, because here's the question. Does Thomas then put his fingers in his side, in his hands, and go, oh, it really is you? No. Thomas, Thomas made a pretty audacious claim. Not unless I put my own fingers and hands into his fingers and sides, and not unless I do this will I believe. I mean, that's a pretty crazy claim. Listen, here is the point. Drop your conditions. Drop your conditions. Thomas luckily dropped his condition. He didn't be like, okay, Jesus, I know you're here in the midst of us. Let me just double check. He doesn't do that. Drop your conditions. Please, please hear me on this. When you begin to say, I won't believe in Jesus until X. I won't believe in Jesus if he explains to me why he took away my loved one. I won't believe in Jesus unless he heals me of my cancer. I won't believe in Jesus unless he gets me out of this terrible situation. I won't believe in Jesus if. Once you begin to say, I won't believe in Jesus if or until this X, that is a condition. And you're saying, I'm only going to conditionally believe in you, Jesus. Based off this condition, if you can answer my needs, meet my needs, answer my questions, I will believe in you. Once you do that, then you have a conditional relationship with Jesus. Then it's something based on, then it can change. Then know what you're really saying? You're saying, this thing, this question, this need matters to me more than you. The question I have that you're not answering matters more to me than you matter to me. That is what this condition means. That, so here's what Jesus is doing. He, Jesus meets him where he's at in loving and grace, but I can't encourage everyone, Christians and non-Christians alike, hey, drop your conditions. If you're going to Jesus right now and saying, I won't believe in Jesus until, listen, it, we can do this, all of us do. I want a sign from heaven. How do I really believe in the resurrection? The resurrection is the sign. The resurrection is a sign God has given us. To do what John did, to do what Peter did, to look at the evidence and count it, to weigh it. John's like, I believed. When I I had to weigh the evidence, I believed. The disciples saw Jesus. Hey, we saw him, we saw him. And know what? A, A testimony of other people didn't work for him. Ten testimonies didn't work for him. 
And I think in, this can still happen today where hundreds, thousands say, this is how Jesus changed my life. Maybe you saw a video, this is how Jesus changed my life, Jesus changed my life, Jesus changed my life. And you're like, no, no, no. I won't believe until, and listen, I'm gonna say this, don't have any conditions on God. Drop them. Um, let, let God come to you freely. Don't put a condition on him. Listen, if he's calling your voice, even right now, respond. If he says your name, that one word, respond. If you sense that faith right now, listen, don't hope you'll have it again later. Respond in this moment. And this is what Thomas is learning. He goes, I, I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna do it. I cannot do it. I'm not gonna put my fingers in the side. That's a ridiculous claim and statement to make. And so what does Thomas do and how does he respond? And this is what we'll end with is number five. Listen, you must personally decide to follow Jesus. You must personally decide to follow Jesus. It says in verse 28, Thomas answered and said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Listen, you must personally decide to follow Jesus. Jesus shows up in the middle of that room that day and says, put your fingers in my side and my hands. And Thomas doesn't do it. He simply says this great confession, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus has some comments for him. We'll look at that. But notice his reaction. Hold on. I, I got to make this really clear. In his doubt, actually, it was in the, most, in the midst of his doubt, he makes the greatest proclamation of faith. As he's doubting and skeptical, and I will not believe, and maybe you've made that claim, I will not believe, Jesus appears to him, and he goes, my Lord and my God. And listen, he's not just saying, Lord God. He's not just saying, wow, you are Lord, you are God. He's not saying, you are Lord, you are God. He's saying, you're my Lord and you're my God. This is personal now. He's not just saying, you must be the God and the creator of the world. You must be the Lord for everyone. You must be because you're risen, which is true. But he doesn't say that. He says, my Lord, my God. You're my Lord. You're my God. I, I'm in. I'm all in. You're my Lord. You're my, you're my master. What you say goes. You're God. Obviously, you conquered sin, hell, and death. You came back to the grave by yourself. Like in a sense, like you did. No one brought you back to life. You did. My Lord, my God. And he just forever believes. And his life is forever changed. And I cannot stress this enough because please notice what Jesus did and please notice what his reaction. By the way, I, I just got to point this out. Jesus goes, look at my wounds. Look at my scars. Look at my scars. Listen, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you honestly want to know what is God like, look at Jesus. You know, if you think about this. God has scars. God has wounds. Why in the world would God have wounds? Why, why doesn't Jesus just appear in the midst and not show him his wounds and say, Thomas, I'm here. You should believe. Just, just believe and obey, man. He doesn't do that. It's not that anger. He's like, here's my wounds, here are my scars. Check out my wounds. Check out my scars yourself. Check them out. I think this is an, honestly an invitation for all of us. Hey, listen, consider the wounds of Jesus. Consider the scars of Jesus. Consider the fact that the God of the universe has wounds. Why does God have wounds? Because we have wounds. Why does God have wounds and scars? Because if we have wounds and scars. God became like us so we could become like him. Do we get that? If you're saying, why do I have wounds and scars? Well, notice God has wounds and scars. And God took on our wounds and scars so that we might be like him. You know, I, there's this saying that I, I honestly still love it when you, maybe you've heard this or haven't, but people ask the question like, is there anything man-made in heaven? And there's only one thing man-made in heaven, right? What is that? It's the wounds and scars in Jesus' hands. There's gonna be nothing man-made in heaven, nothing, nothing man-made in heaven except the wounds in Jesus' hands and feet and his side. There's one man-made thing in heaven and that's what the pain that Jesus took on for us at the cross. And he goes, hey, check me out. Like, look at my wounds, look at my scars, consider yourself. Thomas just goes, my Lord, my God, there's no, other op there's no other option but you're my Lord, you're my God. I'm, done. I'm in. I'm all in. There's no other option for me right now in this moment but to believe this. Listen, here is the point. Hope has a name. 
he rose from the grave. Hope has a name. Um, he went from death to life. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. I mean, his name is Jesus. I know we know this, but Thomas went from a skeptic to now all the hope in the world to the point where later, if you follow Thomas's history, we're told that later he went east, most likely India was where he died, proclaiming his faith for Christ, where he was actually speared, where he was speared to death. Hope has a name. Hope and the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. It changes everything about how we do life. You cannot just say, I believe theoretically Jesus rose again. It's like, I believe into this. Jesus, if you're risen, then that means when I die, I too will rise. Jesus, if you're risen, that can only mean that you're truly the son of God. Jesus, if you're risen, that must mean you're the Messiah that fulfills all scripture, all prophecy, everything's about you, that you're God in the flesh, you walked among us, you lived a sinless life, you died on my behalf and you rose again, I'm all in, my Lord, my God. And this is what he's doing. He says, I'm all in. I'm all in. How can I not be all in? And then Jesus has a wonderful reaction. And let me just read this again. He said, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, Jesus is speaking, obviously, about us. Every generation after this. Blessed are those now who believe and haven't seen. John actually claimed, I believe before I saw. And here we are in this moment, in this time, with that same invitation and blessing. You are blessed. Um, you are filled with God's grace, God's favor, God's joy, if you believe and yet have never seen. I want to be honest. I remember as a kid wrestling with this, like 16, 17 years old, like, am I really all in? Do I really believe this? And honestly, I wanted, I don't know if you've ever prayed for this. Like, God, show up. Right now, show up. If you're real, man, please speak to me. What you did for Thomas, do for me right now. And I don't know if you ever prayed that prayer. And I, there came a point in time where I kind of, I honestly just remember like going, I will probably never have an experience like this where Jesus appears in the room in the midst of me. I probably will never have an experience like this in this body, in this life right now. But you know what? Jesus calls that person and calls me blessed. But you know what? Blessed is the person who believes and is not seen because we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is not blind. Faith is not naive. Faith looks at the evidence. It counts the cost. It weighs it all, and it makes an intelligent decision. And here's the thing. Faith is rational, but faith is a gift. And if you sense right now God speaking to you, and you say, you know what? Believe. Why haven't you yet believed? I've been calling your name. You've been rejecting it for so long. Believe. Believe in this moment. Everyone. Everyone has to make that personal decision to say, my Lord, my God. It's not enough for you to say, okay, he might be Lord, he might be God. To say, my Lord, my God. And I want to invite you today to make that decision to simply say, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my God. I believe you were once dead and you came back to life. I believe the story changed human history as we know it. It changed Greek worldviews, Roman worldviews. It changed Jewish worldviews. I mean, it started a movement that is still going to this day where people can't gather even in person. And this is being broadcasted everywhere all over the world because Jesus is risen. Because somebody saw something. Because Jesus truly is alive. And he rose again to never die again. He rose again to live forevermore that he is the perfect person, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And listen, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus asked this question to a different Mary. He goes, he goes Mary, I'm the resurrection of life. If you believe in me, though you die, you will live. Do you believe this? I love that sentence. Do you get that? Jesus, I'm the resurrection of life. If you believe in me, if you believe in me, though you die, when you die, you will live. Do you believe that? And he asked her that question spot on. And I think that this question is still being asked and needs to be asked. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that though you die, you will live? Because just like Jesus died and rose again, your faith is in him. So you too will die and rise again. Do you believe that? 
He says, if you believe in me, though you die, you will live. Listen, believe on Jesus. I'm gonna pray. We wanna give you a chance to believe on Jesus. If you've been, a, whether far from God your whole life or a Christian skeptic or on the fence, it is time. Do not assume tomorrow or the next, I'll have an opportunity. So I'm gonna pray right now. And we're gonna pray and give you an opportunity to believe on Jesus. Father, we come to you and just ask that you would speak and that you would move. Jesus, I believe you have been speaking to, to not just my heart, but to everyone listening. Jesus, I believe that you are more than enough. I believe like you did with Mary, you do for us, where you call us out by name. And Jesus, right now, people who are listening and been skeptical, cynical, Jesus, help them to right now doubt those doubts they've always lived by, to doubt their unbelief, to more than consider you, but to say, I believe I'm in, I'm all in, I'm gonna believe into Jesus. But Lord, to change every fiber of their being, that we will still not be perfect, we'll be far from perfect. We're boasting in your righteousness, Jesus. We're boasting in what you've done for us, not in our goodness. My goodness, my, the good things I do is as filthy rags to you, but we're here to boast in the cross and the resurrection of you, Jesus. We thank you. God, we ask that you'd move right now, call people by name right now, bring dead men and dead women to life right now, Jesus. And listen, before I say amen, I need everyone just to listen for a second. This is the gospel. The gospel is not that, that you just die and one day you go to heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. The gospel is you get to be with Jesus. One of my favorite quotes of my life, this guy said, if I were to die and to go to heaven and Jesus was not there, that would be hell to me. And if I were to die and go to hell and Jesus was there, that would be heaven to me. You're thinking, how can someone say that? He's going, because the good news, salvation is not just heaven, it's Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the one we look to and long for. Let me actually read the last verse in this chapter. Here's what John says. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. John's like, I'm not holding back any punches. I'm trying to tell you why I wrote this, that you believe that he's God and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. Believing into him, you would have life forevermore. Believing on Jesus. I love the story when they say, Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work, singular, of God. Believe on me whom the Father has sent. You're gonna say, it's too simple. I, I know it sounds like it is. It's simple enough for a child to believe, but it's also deep and rich enough for the most intelligent thinker to say, I believe on him. Yeah, you believe into him, you believe on him, and you will be saved. So how do I experience this? It is so clear and so simple. God's not trying to trick us, you guys. God's making it so simple. Please listen. It's Romans 10. This is what it says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, your Lord, Lord Jesus, you believe in your heart, meaning you believe with your whole being that Jesus is risen that he conquered sin and hell and death on my behalf and he's alive. And if I believe in him, I too will live. It says, if you believe this, you're saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's not trying to trick us, make it difficult. Please just right now and say, confess that. My Lord, my God. Don't push this off. Don't assume next week or tomorrow. Right now, confess that. Jesus, the way he ends the book of Revelation, says something is so inviting and so welcoming. And here's what Jesus said to end the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Listen, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. He's saying, come. Jesus, God the Father is in, come. Come, the church is in, come. Come, 
receive Jesus, believe on Jesus, believe into Jesus. This cannot be theory anymore. If you've been a Christian, this has just been a lot of theory, and like I can check the box that maybe he died and rose again. Believe into Jesus. Weigh the evidence and say, I'm all in. This idea of I surrender or I live for Jesus one weekend a year or one Sunday a year, I follow Jesus here and there. It's like, I'm all in. I'm all in. If Jesus truly died and rose again, you cannot be in this middle ground of, yeah, I believe. Like, you have to be all in. And if you haven't been all in, this is the day to be all in. Today, if you hear his voice speaking to you, do not harden your heart. Respond right now. I actually, we're going to put a little prayer up here that we're going to pray in just a second. And I first want to read this prayer to you. Here is the prayer. This prayer of confession is, Lord Jesus, I admit that I am more sinful than I ever wanted to believe, but through you I am more loved and accepted than I ever could imagine. Think about that. I admit that I'm more sinful than I ever wanted to believe about myself, but through you I'm more loved and accepted than I ever could imagine. I recognize that I am a sinner in need of saving. Thank you for paying my debt on the cross, taking the punishment I deserve, and offering complete forgiveness in you, Jesus. I believe you've been raised from the dead, and today I commit my whole life to you. Thank you for grace. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Listen, this is that prayer of confession. This is if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And this is not just words, guys. This is not empty words. This is something like when you, are, when you get married and you stand before God and your spouse, your future spouse, you're making this covenant one to another. And when people say these, these words, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, that's not just empty words. There's a covenant taking place. Say, I'm all in. When things are good or bad, I'm all in. And this is what that prayer is. I'm all in. Jesus, I am way worse. I, Josiah, am way worse than I ever wanted to believe. But I'm also more loved and accepted than I ever could imagine. And you're confessing your faults and your sins, and you're confessing Jesus as Lord. And so I wanted to read this before you pray, because I wanted you to see what you're committing to. I want you to understand this covenant taking place, where Jesus already paid it all. Jesus already paid my debt. We have the receipt. We have that the transaction has been accepted through the resurrection of Jesus. God's like, it's paid for. Believe it. Receive it. So right now, I'm just going to ask that you'd pray this. So if you want to look at the screen, you can. If you want to just close your eyes where you're at and hear these words, but I'm going to ask that you pray this right now. Repeat after me at your home. I'll give you more instruction. Here's what you're going to pray right now. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am more sinful than I ever wanted to believe. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever could imagine. Pray this out loud. I recognize that I am a sinner of needing saving. Thank you for paying my debt on the cross, taking the punishment I deserve, and offering complete forgiveness in you. I believe you've been raised from the dead, and today I commit my whole life to you. Thank you for your grace. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Listen. If you prayed that prayer, here's what the Bible says, not me, not Josiah. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be, will be saved. I'm going to ask that you call upon the Lord. Again, pray that. Talk to someone about this. Tell someone, I just prayed this prayer where I confess I'm a sinner and Jesus saved me and died and rose again. Here's, I want to be really practical right now. Right now online, there's some different chats happening. If you've prayed that prayer, please let someone in the chat know, hey, I prayed this prayer. If you just want to get prayer right now, we're actually going to have prayer groups happening right now. Um, I believe there'll be Zoom prayer groups, and there should be information on how to access that right now, wherever you're at, Facebook, YouTube, on our website. We're trying to say, hey, get into a room, with a prayer room, digital room, and pray with someone. 
and say, hey, listen, I just prayed this prayer, but I still need help. What does that mean? What's next? What does it mean to follow Jesus in community? What does it mean to follow Jesus with others? That's what they're there for. They're there to walk you through that. So listen, this is a beautiful day. This is a day where we celebrate Jesus is risen and and you too will rise if you believe in him. That the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just stay with Jesus. Paul says, but Christ is risen from the dead. Our faith is not in vain, but now he is risen. And if you believe in him, you too will rise. Listen, the goal is Jesus. The goal is being with Jesus, knowing Jesus. Listen, we want to just encourage you on this journey. If you're saying, I've decided to follow Jesus, I've been around the church, I, I thought it was about being a good person, I've never really understood it this way. If you want to follow Jesus in community, listen, please stick around, ask questions, email us. We just want to help walk you through this journey. We have house groups that meet throughout the week. We would love to invite you into community. The point is not just praying a prayer and that's it, your life is done. That you're walking into a journey. It's not like your wedding day is over and you're like, oh, I forgot I was married. No, like you're enjoying your wedding now. You're enjoying your marriage. And this is the idea of following Jesus, enjoying that wedding now, enjoying that marriage uh, that you're in now. So enjoy that, walk in that, know him, be in community. Listen, we just want to close our time by worshiping Jesus. We want to close our time by celebrating the fact that he is risen. So let's do this again. He is risen, and then you say he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's worship our Lord.